So we have the invitation to rejoice this morning uh, with captive Israel. Do you hear the good news? Well, that good news that was given to captive Israel did not really make the headlines 2,000 years ago. It didn't make the front page of the Jerusalem Times. Uh, This wasn't an announcement that came in a very covert way. Uh, The Messiah arrived uh, not with royal pronouncements in the streets, uh, not from palaces. No, the arrival of the newborn king was announced just to a handful of people. Foreigners from the east, shepherds in a field, and a few others mentioned in Scripture. Yes, the mission of the world to save the world. The rescue mission was launched under the cover of darkness in a horse trough with little fanfare. But what a glorious announcement it was. What a glorious announcement it is. The rescue of the captives. And this morning in our sermon text, we're going to hit on that theme from Paul's letter to Titus. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 2. Earlier this week, I was thinking about, well, what do I want to preach on Christmas Day? And I went to the lectionary. Uh, The lectionary is a calendar of scriptures, and there are four scriptures listed each Sunday There's a psalm, there's a passage from the Old Testament, there's a passage from one of the Gospels, and then there's a passage from one of the letters uh, from Paul or from others in Scripture. And the one that caught my eye was the letter of Paul to one of his apprentices, Titus. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, we'll be there in a moment in chapter 2. Titus is a short letter. I would imagine that it fits on one page or two pages of your Bible. If the letter of Titus was a town in Texas, it would have one stoplight and a Dairy Queen. Don't blink or you'll drive right by it. I think the letter of Titus would also be a speed trap. So we would do well to slow down when we get to Titus. This is not your typical sermon or Christmas passage. There are no stables or animals or angel announcements, or stars. But if you slow down and take in these four verses, I think you'll be blessed with a Christmas message and then some. I admit that I've sped right past this particular passage every time I've read through Titus. I've not really taken these words in and to my own dismay. So let's slow down. Let's pull over at the Dairy Queen and have a blizzard. Let's hear the good news of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Hear the word of God from this passage. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. 
May God bless the reading of His Word. Well, it's considered by many to be the greatest Christmas story. I'm not talking about Ernest Saves Christmas. No, I'm referring to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's a beautiful song of a story, although it doesn't start out that way. Ebenezer Scrooge, Mr. Bah Humbug, is quite the monster. Uh, Not the kind with fangs and fur, but rather his heart is warped and disordered and self-absorbed. Scrooge is a miser. He lacks all empathy. He lacks all compassion when it comes to the downtrodden. Any opportunity to share with those less fortunate than himself is met with callousness, anger, even resentment. Scrooge mistreats his employee, Bob Cratchit, a man who's overworked and underpaid. He can barely feed his family, including his youngest son, Tim, who's in very poor health. Not that Ebenezer would care. Scrooge isolates himself. And the more he isolates himself, the more monstrous he becomes. He truly is a captive to the greed in his heart and his love of money and his disdain for his fellow man. He thinks he's free. He thinks that he has found the meaning of life. But the truth is, he's in a prison. And in thinking about our sermon passage this morning, I think Ebenezer Scrooge would have felt right at home in the island of Crete, the island where Titus found himself whenever he receives this very short letter from the Apostle Paul. Crete is an island of misfit toys, an island of Scrooges. Paul has stationed Titus to work with these churches there on the island, But I wonder if Titus felt like he was marooned on that island. I wonder if Titus felt a bit exiled by Paul whenever he was giving these marching orders to work with the Cretans. And who were the Cretans? What were they like? They do carry a reputation. Paul doesn't have to make this up. He actually quotes one of the Cretan prophets in chapter 1 verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Apparently, Paul has had some experience with the Cretans. Notice that Paul doesn't say, you know, I think the the Cretan prophet was a little harsh on his own people. He doesn't say, now, now, the Cretans aren't that bad. No, what Paul says when he quotes that description from the Cretan prophet is... This testimony is true. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That sounds about right to me, says Paul. Yes, I think Ebenezer Scrooge would have fit right in there in the the island of Crete. And these are the people whom Titus has to work with. Paul has given him a mission to make godly ladies and gentlemen out of this motley crew of islanders. Titus is to help the churches. And he's to help the churches by assigning leaders, finding elders from among the Cretans, men of noble character to help the gospel take root in the lives of these liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, these people who were captives to the reign of sin, people who thought they were free, but in essence, they lived in a prison. 
But I wonder this morning if we are able to find ourselves there on that island. I wonder if we have the ability to find ourselves there. I don't know how many people we have here this morning. Uh, You never know what you're going to get on Christmas Day. We are kind of all condensed right here in the middle. I'm actually quite terrible at estimating crowds. I embody that preacher stereotype of the preacher count. I always overestimate. Uh, So we have thousands here this morning. (laughs) But we do have people attending here physically. We have people who are attending virtually. Uh, But beyond the the numbers of people here or online, only God really knows the motivations for why we are here with Brentwood Oaks this morning. I mean, it is Christmas morning, it's December, December the 25th, you could be at home right now, warm, watching a Christmas movie, watching the kids play with their new toys, but you chose to be here physically, virtually, and the question is, why? Why are you here? Why have you joined this gathering of people singing and praying and hearing a preacher talk about Cretans on this cold December morning? Well, I imagine that at least one of the reasons why we are here is because, well, you know something about yourself, and I know something about myself. We're all in on it. We know a secret. Well, it's not really a secret. It's an open secret, although we have as human beings the capacity to turn a blind eye to this truth. And what is the truth? Well, the truth is we are all captives. The truth is there's a little Cretan inside of all of us. There is something in every one of us that's broken. It's the reign of sin, it's the memory of sin, it's the shame of sin. And like Israel, like the Cretans, we too have our own story of captivity. It's not pleasant to think about here on a Christmas morning, to think about and ponder the not-so-good parts about us that we wish were not there. But as painful as it is to visit the island of Crete and maybe... Even more painful to find ourselves there among the Cretans. When we hold up a mirror to ourselves, we're really given a gift. Because until we allow ourselves to go there, until we recognize our own captivity to sin, until we address the monster, we really can't embrace the good news of the season the good news of the arrival of the Messiah. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us, and rescue captive Israel, rescue all of us. That is the good news. We have been redeemed. God knows the Cretan inside of all of us. And yet, we have been redeemed. That's what Titus 2, 11 through 14 is all about, this very compact telling of the gospel. I think I'm going to revisit this verse maybe in the months to come. These four verses that in the spirit of the Christmas carol have a past, present, and future to them, to them. 
the past, the appearance of the grace of God, the future, the appearance of the glory of God at the second coming of Christ. But in between the grace and the appearance of the glory, there is the present age. And this is where Paul spends his time in Titus. This is where Paul spends his time in a lot of his letters. And what is Paul telling us? Well, he's answering a question. To what end? What is our redemption all about? Well, this becomes clear as you read the letter of Titus. Because there's this theme that, that Paul revisits over and over again throughout this short letter. And it has a lot to do with the mission that he's entrusted to Titus. Working there among the Cretans. And that's the theme of transformation. It's the theme of transformation that's made manifest in good works. And so if you want to follow along, I'll take you on a journey through this short letter. It begins in a negative way, talking about the Cretans. Chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then Paul gives some instruction to Titus there within some instruction to some young men. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for, wait for it, Every good work. Chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul ends this letter in chapter 3, verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And then our sermon text this morning the culmination of the Christmas story, our new exodus, the cross, the resurrection. From chapter 2, verse 14, God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works or eager for good works. What is the Christmas story all about? What is our redemption all about? What is our salvation all about? Well, it seems to me that Paul has something much bigger in mind than some future event one day when we live in our heavenly dwelling, when God rescues us. That future is part of the story. Something I'm looking forward to by His grace and mercy. But between the appearance of God's grace and the appearance of God's glory, we have the here and the now. And our redemption leads us to good works. It's about transformation. It's already started because of the cross and the empty tomb, and it plays out as a present reality. One of my favorite authors, well, I like his name. I've mentioned him before, Klein Snodgrass. 
good name to remember. But Klein brings this idea of the gospel and our rescue and what it does for us in his commentary to the Ephesians when he says, Salvation is not from works, but surely it's for works. Salvation is not from works, but it surely is for works. Salvation is not something that we can earn. We can't put all of our good works on a scale that's never going to work out in our favor. But salvation surely is for works. As we are being transformed from a group of Cretans to a group of people who are eager to do good works. To what end? What is the Christmas story all about? It's about heart surgery. It's about new life. It's about new creation. It's about transformation. And all of this by God's grace, who does not wish for us to stay as Cretans, but wants to transform us into the image of His Son. I think this is why the story of Ebenezer Scrooge means so much to so many people this time of the year. It resonates because a Christmas carol is a gospel metaphor. A Christmas carol is the story of God defeating a monster. He doesn't kill Ebenezer Scrooge and wipe him off the face of the earth as much as he deserves it. God's love runs much deeper than that. Out of sheer grace, God slays Ebenezer Scrooge. God slays the monster. And by the end of the book, by the last note of A Christmas Carol, Scrooge has been transformed. He's been transformed to a Christmas song. He's a man who's left his life of self-absorption. And he has become eager to share Eager to love. Eager to do good works. It's, it's the gospel according to Ebenezer Scrooge. And really it captures the essence of what the Messiah is all about. Can you hear the good news this morning? The good news of a love that is so powerful that God would send His one and only, only Son to die for us to redeem us, to ransom us, to transform us. The God of second chances, the God of fresh starts, the God of new beginnings is calling this morning. May we answer that invitation to come to Him, to experience His grace and His redemption, and ultimately, his transformation. We're going to sing a song now that speaks to this as we walk in the light of the Savior. God is active among us, helping us to be that which He has called us to be. If you would like to respond to the good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.